This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, I hope you're well. It's Wednesday afternoon. I'm Cassie Help with you for The Country Hour. This warm weather might have sped some things up harvest-wise, although there could be a bit more rain on the way. We'll have weather soon, but also uh, rentals have been particularly susceptible to the weather lately. They're having a tricky season, um, depending on where you are, but trying to trade them is also proving tricky as well. Some cases for Pakistan I'm talking about mainly is their buyer has the money, so the buyer has their rupees in the bank in local currency. But the bank has no U.S. dollars. So what's happening in some cases is the bank is giving the cargo to the buyer, taking their rupees, but then not giving us U.S. dollars. I'll have more on the lentil trade soon. Also an update on the legal challenge to the new Cattle Australia body. First up today, the ban on snapper fishing was due to end at the start of February next year, but it looks like it could be extended after a new scientific report shows stocks are still very tight. The Saudi stock assessment report shows that while the three-year ban on catching snapper has stopped the decline in numbers, there hasn't been much improvement either. The marine scale fish Fishery Management Advisory Committee is now looking at what to do going forward. Primary Industries Minister Claire Scrivens also weighing things up. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So what do you make of the report that's come out? Well, I think on one level it's good news that the continuing decline in stocks has been arrested, so it's not getting worse. Obviously it's disappointing that neither has it started to recover as yet. So I, I think the one, number one thing is that all the sectors agree that the sustainability of the fishery has to be number one. Uh, without, a sustainable, uh, without a sustainable fishery, no one will be able to uh, go fishing for snapper. That's both, uh, you know, people want to protect the opportunities for their children and their, their grandchildren to be able to do that as well down the track. So sustainability has got to be the number one consideration. Uh, and this scientific report is a part of the process. What will happen from here is that the um, uh, Management Advisory Committee uh, will meet towards the end of this month. Uh, they're currently considering the scientific report as well. Uh, and then they'll give me some recommendations on what they see as the next steps going forward. So no word yet on whether or not that ban will be extended? No, I expect to make a decision before the end of the year and I do understand how people are very keen to to have certainty as soon as possible. But it's also really important that we get uh, the decisions and any uh, any management arrangements in place, they need to be the right ones. So it's look, Snapper is really important both for commercial fishers, for the charter boat industry and for recreational fishers. Uh, but I think... We all agree uh, that number one has got to be the sustainability of the stocks going forward. Were these results a surprise after the three-year ban? I suppose it depends who you speak to. Um, the information I have is that perhaps within the uh, those with the scientific knowledge, it, it wasn't uh, a, a big surprise because snapper is a slow-growing species. It takes some years before they're of the age to reproduce. Uh, and, of course, some years before they're at the, the size, uh, I think it's 38 centimetres, that they can be caught. So um, I think there would have been a lot of people hoping that some recovery would have started to be seen. Uh, but at the moment, all we can take in terms of, of comfort is that the continuing decline has been arrested. And when you look at recreational catch as well as commercial catch in making your decision, could there be modifications to this ban? I don't want to anticipate the sort of recommendations that might come to me at this stage. Uh, the, the science has only just been released. That's currently being considered. And then the Management Advisory Committee will be making their recommendations. So, uh, look, I think it's important to look at all of the options that are available. Uh, but, again, sustainability has got to come first. There are some differences between the Gulf St Vincent and the... Uh, Spencer Gulf, is there going to be um, a sort of look at the various gulfs as well? So the information that's collected uh, is sort of region specific to the extent that it's able to be. So, uh, you know, I don't know whether the committee will make any recommendations that it can be approached in different ways. I'll have to wait and see. 
Thank you for that. I would just say we'll catch up when you are ready to make a decision. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven there with an update on the uh, Stardi report, the, the stock assessment report that came out. Looking at the uh, stock numbers for Snapper, and uh, as she was saying there, the, they aren't in decline. The numbers of, of Snapper aren't in decline the way they were, but they, they haven't seen much improvement either. So it uh, looks like between now and the end of the year, the government will make a decision on what will happen going forward given that ban was meant to lift on the 31st of January, I believe. So we'll keep following that here at the Country Hour. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Into some cropping now and the global demand for lentils continues to be strong even though the Australian harvest will be of mixed quality this year. Weather and disease are affecting lentils in this country and a shortage of US dollars is also playing havoc with the international markets as well. Will Alexander is a pulse trader at Australian Grain Exports. He told Karen Hunt the outlook for lentils is not straightforward. Oh, very mixed on lentils. So obviously we've got Victoria, which is way off harvest. Uh, there's more rain coming. People, you know, very nervous about lentil production in Victoria, understandably. And then on the opposite flip side of it in South Australia, we're a week into harvest over here. We've had some very good early crops coming off. Lots of lentil deliveries happening. Lots of farmer engagement selling lentils up towards $900 for lentil prices, which is still, you know, very good. Lentils have been flying in the door and quality's good and Yields are good and everyone seems pretty happy. With the uncertainty around and the premium prices being paid for good lentils, is there a market for those lower grade lentils? Yes, always. If there are lower grades of lentils, we can always find markets for them. That just means that a number one lentil gets a, a much better premium over the poorer quality types if there's a lot of that poor quality around. What is the global market for lentils and other pulse crops at the moment? Before the Canadian drought last year, prices were good and demand was excellent. That demand overseas, regardless of what Canada's producing, is still very good. So there's a huge demand for lentils around the world. Things like beans, again, there's always good demand from Egypt. But what we're finding with all these other countries at the minute is not a supply and demand problem. It's more a US dollar problem. So nearly every pulse market we deal with, every country that we deal with overseas, is having issues with US dollars and not being able to get enough so even in some cases, for Pakistan, I'm talking about mainly is their buyer has the money. So the buyer has their rupees in the bank in local currency, but the bank has no US dollars. So what's happening in some cases is that the bank is giving the cargo to the buyer, taking their rupees, but then not giving us US dollars. So a lot of these countries were having similar issues where a lack of US dollars is creating a trade barrier or making it hard for trade to happen and for people to want to trade with people overseas in, in the pulse world. Do pulses normally trade in US dollars? Always, yes. So everything we sell is in US dollars to wherever it is, Egypt, Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, always. So the whole market trades in US dollars. Back in the height of the pandemic, you're also having trouble with finding enough shipping containers. Has that issue been resolved? Depending who you talk to, for us personally as a company, no, it's not got worse. We're still paying through the nose for it, so we're still paying very high rates for it. The positive is that they haven't got more expensive because for a while there they were just going up and up and up every week. We're not definitely not back to the times when we can just sell to anyone at any time, to any destination. These days we're far more restricted with what we can and can't do. So again, that is also something that influences demand and price and so on, regardless of production and what's happening with the farm. Will Alexander from Australian Grain Exports speaking with Karen Hunt. A recent study has investigated the links between crop stubble, soil nutrition and yields. It showed that depending on how crop stubble or residue fell, there were both negative and positive effects on crop growth. Associate Professor from the University of Western Australia, Ken Flowers, says to gain the positives of crop residue, farmers need to diversify crop rotations. So the trial was a crop rotation trial, a long-term trial funded by the Grains Research and Development Corporation, GRDC. And the aim of the trial was to uh, look at the effect of crop rotation on yield and soil organic carbon. But what we noticed, it was it was a large-scale trial using 
uh, mostly farmer equipment. And so it was harvested with a commercial size uh, header. And what we noticed was that the crop stubble or residue um, being spread out the back of the harvester was not uniform and that there was generally more stubble directly behind the harvester compared to further out. And we also noticed differences in crop growth. And so we did a long-term investigation just to have a look at what impact that residue was having on crop yield. So not only is future growth impacted on the way that uneven stubble is spread, but it also affects the soil biodiversity or, or chemistry as well. Uh, yes. So uh, the, the, what we found was that there's sort of short-term in-season effects, so direct effects of that crop residue on the yield. Um, and then there were some longer-term effects. The longer-term effects were caused by differences in the, in the uh, I suppose, nutrient um, buildup in different areas of the soil based on where that uh, residue was in relation to the to where the harvester travelled. This is an issue um, that's going to become more and more uh, evident, particularly as um, more farmers move on to control traffic systems, because then they're always travelling on the same wheel track. So all the residue will every year come out in that pattern, and you'll end up slowly with more and more residue uh, being deposited uh, directly behind the harvester compared to the outer edge, for example, where the where the cutting front is. And then the other issue is that um, harvesters are also getting bigger and bigger, so wider fronts. So it becomes more difficult to spread that residue um, to those wider cutting fronts for the new bigger harvesters. Were you able to obtain data that shows exactly what kind of impact the uneven fall of stubble or spread has for long-term yields? Yeah, so um, what we directly compared in this trial was we had a rotation with just cereals. So we had uh, wheat, wheat, and barley, so two wheats and a barley. And then we also had a diverse rotation that we were comparing with. So that had wheat and then a legume like uh, chickpea, and then we had um, lupin as well, albus lupin, and canola. So wheat, legume, canola. So a diverse rotation compared to a cereal-only rotation with wheat, wheat, barley. So uh, what we found is that in some years, the residue has had a positive effect. Um, in other years, it had a negative effect and some years, no effect. So the more residue we found where there were higher loads of residue, we got a positive effect on yield. So it actually increased yield. And then in other seasons where we actually had a negative effect, those were seasons where we had very heavy rainfall and also seasons where we had frost. So we then found a negative effect. So more residue reduced yield. So in some seasons, a positive effect when it was dry early, and then sometimes the residue had a negative effect. So the message really there is to, I suppose, uh, get the benefit, positive effect of residue and mitigate those negative effects, we should grow more diverse rotations. There was also an underlying long-term effect, um, which was related to the fact that because we are depositing uh, residue in different amounts across the um, across the field, uh, this was impacting soil nutrition. So we actually found higher soil organic carbon over, over this long-term trial, higher soil organic carbon, slightly higher pHs, and uh, some of the nutrients directly behind the harvester compared to the edge of the cutting front. So um, in the long-term, it's also um, potentially can create this waviness in the crop because we're getting different amounts of nutrients deposited over the long-term, and that's changing the soil a nutritional status. So in years, uh, in some years, what we noticed was better growth and yield directly behind the harvester because of that uh, long-term buildup of nutrition behind the harvester. These results are applicable to any any broad acre cropping where they are using, uh, you know, sort of uh, commercial large harvesters and particularly any sort of winter cropping system that uh, is, is broad acre and um, would uh, this would apply to because we still have that issue of being able to spread the, you know, the residue uniformly um, across the whole cutting front. And this is becoming, as I said, more and more of a problem as the harvesters get bigger and uh, in control traffic. Systems. Associate Professor from the University of Western Australia, Ken Flower, speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. 
side to the markets now. Peter Kerr has the latest in the livestock sales from across the state. Good afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon, Cassie. This is the Mount Gambier Cattle Report for the 9th of November. Numbers lifted a little as ages out of 729 head of live weight and open auction cattle. These sold to a larger field of trade and processor buyers along with feeder and restocker orders. The buying group were keen to purchase with a couple of new orders present and active on a generally good quality offering in a mixed market for price. Feeler numbers rose as steers to the trade made from 522 to 605 cents and a lift of 10 cents as similar heifers made from 490 to 586. Feeders operated on steers from 528 to 612 and on heifers from 470 to also 586 cents with some restocker support on steers from 580 to 593. Yielding steers to the trade range from 400 to 522 cents with feeder activity from 500 to 540. Yielding heifers attracted the trade from 476 to 560 and feeders from 444 to 500 cents a kilogram. Crow and steers and bullocks lost 20 cents as they made from 425 to 502 with feeder support from 452 to 510. Crow and heifers returned from 446 to 520 cents to the trade. Feeder activity from 440 to 505 as manufacturing steers made from 350 to 412 cents a kilogram. Heavy cows also retreated, retreated 20 cents as they sold from 377 to 410 cents to the trade as lighter lots made from 290 to 374 some feeders operating from 302 to 388 cents a kilogram. Heavy bulls range from 370 to 398 cents with lightweight types to feed on, fetching 505 cents a kilogram. At the time of this report, the Mount Gambier lamb sale was just about to start. I've also got the SALE reports from yesterday. At Dublin yesterday, there was a similar size yarding of 7,684 crossbred and merino lambs. The quality available to the usual trade and processor buyers was far better than last week. Despite the rise in quality, demand was only on a par with last week and values remained similar to those attained last week. Feeder and restocker demand was strong and suitable store condition crossbreds and merinos sold up to the strong values of recent weeks. Hobbits were again more plentiful and demand was solid. Light crossbred lambs ranged from 90 to 120. Light trades from 120 to 170. The heavy crossbred lambs from 175 to $200 with the extra heavies from 200 to the high of 240. Light merino lambs from 70 to 100. Light trades from 105 to 150. Heavy merino lambs from 160 to 170 with a few extra heavies from 175 to 200. Light hobbits range from 90 to 125. The heavy hobbits from 130 to $180. At the following sheep sale, there was another large yarding consisting of 4,562 mixed sheep with all the usual processor and trade buyers in attendance and prices remained fully firm in recent sales. Light use from 75 to 120, the heavy types from 120 to 160, heavy weathers from 150 to 170, as range range from 90 up to $160 a head. Following on from that, there was a small yarding of 121 mixed cattle. Quality was generally very good and demand from buyers ensured prices remained at what has become customary levels. All the usual trade processor and feeder buyers were in attendance and bidding was solid. Cattle suitable to feed on were especially sought after and prices reacted upwardly as a consequence. Cows and bulls were in demand from processors and prices lifted 5 to 10 cents. Store vealers from 550 to 640 with store yearlings from 450 to 580. The trade operated on vealers from 500 to 580 and on yearlings from 430 to 550 cents. Light cows from 260 to 300, the heavy types from 300 to 360, heavy bulls from 330 to 370 with the light types from 400 to 580 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks for that, Peter. To the weather now, there's an extreme fire danger uh, risk forecast for the um, Eastern Air Peninsula today, total fire ban across that part of South Australia. It's all a bit unstable at the moment. The weather, Jenny Horvath, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, can explain more. Good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon, Cassie. Yes, we've got that sort of strong and gusty northeast to northwesterly winds, and that's ahead of this change that we've got coming across from the west. So we have seen that go through um, Sejuna at the moment, but yeah, ahead of that, we've still got those northerly winds, that drier air. We are, it's quite unstable, as you mentioned. We've seen quite a bit of thunderstorm activity already this morning, mostly around the pastoral districts, but now starting to extend closer into sort of um, Air Peninsula at the moment. So that risk for thunderstorms is just going to continue to move east today over more of the central part districts and potentially reaching our eastern border districts later tonight. So the shower activity has been a little bit 
hit and miss with that shower activity yesterday up till 9am this morning. We saw about 7mm at Todd Morden, just under 5mm at Nullarbor and up at Ernabella Pukacha area, just under 4mm. So not too much in that, but generally with the stream but I guess with thunderstorms we could be seeing a little bit more again so just broadly with that system coming across we are generally looking at those similar totals for today with a bit more with those storms again we are monitoring those storms yesterday afternoon we did put out that severe thunderstorm warning for gusty winds in the northwest of the state but with this system moving east that risk for those gusty storms will now be more across sort of the the central parts of the um of the state so sort of bordering both the pastoral districts and with that risk extending into Air Peninsula, York Peninsula, Flinders Mid-North, potentially even as far down as Kangaroo Island this afternoon and early evening with the storms being a little bit gusty. So uh, just keep an eye out for whether that warning does eventuate or regardless the storms could be a bit gusty, whether they reach that damaging wind criteria or not for today. We'll continue to see that system move to the east on Thursday. So still the chance to see some shower and thunderstorm activity across more of our central and western parts on the Thursday morning but that risk really contracts off to our eastern border districts during the afternoon with that trough and still lingering out across the eastern border districts during the afternoon again we'll be watching those thunderstorms closely on Thursday afternoon for severity whether again those damaging wind gusts and whether we see a little bit of heavy rainfall with them on the Thursday on the border through um, through the east there so again hasn't quite gone away this system but by the end of Thursday it would have cleared off to our eastern state neighbours. Then on Friday we've got the next one coming in to the west. Further south with the high will be in a bit of a, a cooler southerly airstream. A little bit of stream shower activity around our southeastern district um, across the coast mostly just light down there but it's this next one again up in the north and the west that could be a bit interesting and then that one comes across more broadly on Saturday still a bit of uncertainty with timing and positioning but broad areas of the state again on Saturday looking at showers and thunderstorms still hang around a bit on Sunday before they clear off on Monday Looking at some of the rainfall that we are expecting up until the end of Sunday, generally across the state we are looking at ten, um, 2 to 10 millimetres with that totals increasing to 10 to 20 millimetres about the agricultural area. We could be seeing some local heavier falls over the, over the next few days and the weekend of 20 to 40 millimetres cumulative and that's likely with the, some heavier showers and some thunderstorms there, Cassie. Thanks for that, Jenny Horvat from the Bureau of Meteorology. And continuing that unstable weather in the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be partly cloudy tomorrow. There is a higher chance of showers in the west, only a slight chance elsewhere, but there could be a thunderstorm around and that could get severe. It is also predicted to get pretty windy as well, 25 to 40 kilometres an hour winds. Overnight temperatures will fall to about 16 to 23 degrees day though reaching the low to mid-30s. In the lower western, it will be partly cloudy, a very high chance of showers in the west, but only a medium chance elsewhere. Again, thunderstorms around, they could get uh, a bit nasty as well. Windy, uh, 25 to 40 k's an hour. Overnight, dropping down to 15 to 21 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the low 30s. We're approaching 12.30 on the Country Hour. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural on abc radio adelaide south australia and broken hill this is cassie huff hello it's great to have your company today i'm so glad you could join me the dairy industry has seen some strong price gains this year after years of dairy farmers leaving the industry however the dairy processing giant Saputo has announced it's going to close some facilities, including a facility in the southeast of South Australia. Uh, approximately 75 employees will be impacted. Uh, it was one a decision that we didn't take easily. Uh, we're acutely aware of the impacts to our employees. I'll have more on what's happening with the dairy processor. And do you wear hemp clothing or perhaps use hemp oil in cosmetics? Well, the push is on for a more coordinated research program into the plant after what's been described as 80 years of neglect. So is this something that you would like to see? You can text me on 0467 or phone 1300 991. I'd be interested to know in your interest in uh, hemp products, whether, whether you'd like to see more clothing available with it, uh, perhaps... Um, 
medications or uh, cosmetics, I should say, with the uh, hemp oil in it, let me know. Text 0467922891 or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. We'll head across to the news desk now with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the Attorney General will ask the state's Anti-Corruption Commission and the Department of Public Prosecutions to explain the handling of a controversial court case against a public servant. Prosecutors dropped their case against former Renewal SA boss John Hanlon this morning, one day after a district court judge threw out key evidence against him. Plans to develop Theberton Oval into the Adelaide Crows' new headquarters have moved a step forward. The West Torrens Council and the Crows have signed a memorandum of agreement for the proposed multi-million dollar project. It now enables the AFL club to undertake extensive consultation with the community. And the Health Minister Chris Picton is defending the decision to use storerooms at the Flinders Medical Centre to host inpatient hospital beds. An extra eight clinical beds will be added to Flinders after the extra space was identified by the local health network. Mr Picton says it will take time to sufficiently address growing pressure on the state's hospitals. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt. As I was saying, dairy giant Saputo has announced that it will shut one dairy factory and close some operations at two others as declining milk production in Australia hits the bottom line. The factory at Mafra in Gippsland will close. The powder line at Langatha will shut along with the cheese packing operations at Malel in South Australia. Leanne Katz is the President and Chief Operating Officer of the International and Europe, which covers uh, Saputo's Australian operations. She explains what the thinking is behind this. Yes, today we've announced some consolidation initiatives which are looking to improve our overall efficiency and competitiveness. So they do impact the number of our sites across our network in Australia. So MAFRA will be shut. Lee and Gatha will lose its powder line and Millel in South Australia will lose its cheese packaging area. Is that correct? Correct. And Morris, many of those impacted production and packaging functions at those three facilities will be absorbed or integrated into other facilities across the network. And it's business as usual for our customers and consumers, so they can still buy the brands that they love, whether it's Devendal or Cheer or King Island. So no change to the products and brands. Can you tell us where you're planning on on moving or absorbing those other facilities to, the, the factories that will pick up the slack? All of this will happen over the, the first the first three months of 2023. Is this the start of consolidation from Saputo or should the Australian market expect further consolidation to come? Well, we're always reviewing uh, our network uh, to look at optimisation opportunities uh, because we want to make sure we continue to be like efficient um, and strengthen our position. We're a high-quality, low-cost processor and the actions that we've taken today will continue to be able to develop that within the Australian market. We're committed to the Australian dairy industry. Uh, We value, we want every litre of milk. Um, So we're focused on putting it into those products and markets that offer the highest return. So should Lean Gatha or Millel be worried that they will be set for closure soon, like MAFRA is being announced today? We're always reviewing the network. Uh, Warwick, and so we'll continue to do that. We do that as part of our global strategic plan. We do that across all the divisions, uh, and Australia is no no exception. At the same time, said you know every liter of milk is really important to us, and we want to make sure we put it to the best possible use. Their future could be in the balance. Well, we're you, said, we're, you know we're always reviewing, so that's something that we do across all of our sites. Um, you know, it's 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 no exception, Warwick. How many jobs will go as part of this restructure? You know, our priority is supporting employees. Uh, it is a difficult time. This was a difficult decision. Uh, approximately 75 employees will be impacted. Uh, it was one a decision that we didn't take easily. Uh, we're acutely aware of the impacts to our employees. And so our immediate focus is to support our teams through this period. That includes discussing redeployment and retraining opportunities. And where those alternative roles may not be available, then obviously our impacted employers will be provided with the appropriate severance and outplacement support. Do you have an, a breakdown of, of where the jobs will go? Uh, for example, I, I believe sort of 18 to 20 staff were left at, at MAFRA. Can you provide further details on that? Not at this time. I uh, said, so, you know, we're, we're focusing at the moment, really. Our immediate focus today is on supporting the, the teams through this period. When will the MAFRA site close? All this is going to happen over the first three months of 2023. So we're in discussion now on that. 
And when Samputo bid to buy Murray Goulburn, it made a commitment to keep operating Mafra for five years. This closure would be right around that deadline. Did did that commitment form part of your decision making here? When we when we acquired the Murray Goulburn at the time, we made you know we we obviously were also looking at. The, the overall milk production in Australia. Um, and we know that nationally the industry continues to adapt to that declining milk pool. It, there, there is intense competition for milk. And at the same time, Australia's high-quality milk is still in really strong demand worldwide. So our, our review shows actually a smaller milk pool can still be really profitable for us. And that's why we want to focus on maximising that value of every litre. Saputo, by the sounds of it, is still confident in its position in Australia. You still have plans for Australia? Absolutely. Leanne Cutts, President and Chief Operating Officer of International and Europe, speaking with Warwick Long there. Now, as was mentioned, the cheese packing operations at Malel in the southeast are going to be shut down by the dairy giant Saputo. Uh, John Hunt is the South Australian Dairy Farmers Association president. He also lives in the southeast. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. What uh, impact do you think uh, losing this cheese packing operation will have in the southeast? Look, I think the biggest impact will be on the the employees that that, that are let go. Um, it won't have much impact on um, on farm, but it'll certainly impact those families, which is always uh, which is always front and centre when something like this happens. You uh, you feel for the people who uh, who are um, currently working in, in that facility. Um, Sorry, I cut you off. Uh, are you concerned though that they didn't rule out closing the Malal facility? She sort of talked around that. Oh, no, look, it, it could happen. I, the dairy, the processes, I mean, it, it's pretty evident now that, um, you know, their margins are, are pretty tight as well, you know, as, as well as ours. Uh, I think a few things has happened over the last couple of years. Code of conduct has really made things a lot more transparent. Um, you know, so, you know, you can see their margins, you can see the returns to their shareholders aren't aren't as huge as I think what they used to be. And now everybody is, is looking to, well, re-examining their business, which is which is what they should do. Uh, in no way at all do we want any processor to go out of, out of business. Um, that would be, you know, no good for the industry. That That's when things start going, you know, pretty pear-shaped. But if they're realigning what they're doing, if they're, if they're utilising current facilities, um, you know, I, I, I think it's a good business move. And we've got to realise that only a few years ago we had the capacity or the stainless steel to handle, you know, over 9 billion litres of milk. So when that comes down by, you know, Close to close to a billion litres, uh, there's going to be some empty stainless, which is not profitable to keep running. So, about uh, what's that? A million, a billion litres of milk has left the Australian dairy industry uh, in the last couple of years. No, no, over probably the last ten. You know what I mean? It, it, it carries on to shrink. So, our biggest key, what we have to do as an industry, is is, is boost that back up, create pathways to get young people back into dairying. Uh, what's happened over the last couple of years is prices are really good, uh, prices of land are good, um, and and the other commodities are good. So you, you get people who are ageing a little bit, um, they're looking to either sell or, or, or get out of dairy and get into beef, which is a great position to be in for them, uh, you know, for landholders, because they've got choices. Uh, it's not too many years ago that there were no choices. Um, you know, they, they had to get out or were forced out. So, you know, we've just got to create, you know, pathways. We've got to talk the industry up because it's, you know, it's going really well at the moment. Um, so we need to get young people reinvesting or getting people reinvesting in the industry. Has the pendulum swung too far? A couple of years ago we were talking about how there were dairy farmers leaving the industry because no one could make a profit. There were the dollar milk issues that, that fed through parts of the industry. Has it really swung back the other other way too far? No, I'm going to say no, because um, for a long, long time, you know, we, we were really struggling and and uh, we couldn't get much headway with the retailers and, and the processes. Uh, you know, it was all, you know, a bit stealth mode. Now, um, now that it's more transparent, the, the price, don't, everybody knows the processes have to make money. They have to make a margin for their shareholders. Uh, they, they, there's no, no one would argue with that. It's just now they have to, um, they, they have to really examine what they do in their business. And like I say, you know, um, if, if milk is declining, they may have to make the decision to, to close the plant. Um, hopefully they don't mothball it and it's gone forever. If, if we do get that, that milk pull back up, uh, they can, they can re, reuse them. Um, so, no, I wouldn't have thought it's gone too far. It doesn't sound like the Malel cheese itself will actually be discontinued, just the cheese packaging at Malel. Is that your understanding? Yes. 
Yeah, so they'll, they'll, they'll repackage it somewhere else, you know, in one of their other plants or they'll get other people to do it. Um, so, so that's the good thing that, that the product's still going to be there, um, you know, for, for consumers to enjoy. Uh, like I say, my, my main feeling is for the, uh, the people who are going to get let go if they can't be re, um, repatriated, whatever you call it, you know, um, that, that's and, what it and put re, somewhere yeah. Else. That that's that's your your instant feel, but gee, there was a lot of farmers who went out the door too, you know, uh, not too many years ago. So it's it's a you know you, you, it's that balance. You've got to have that balance that everybody makes a quid in in the line, and at the end of it, the consumer gets a good safe product. So um, yeah, there, there's still a lot of work to do to make sure that that happens. Thank you for your time today. I know you're very busy as a dairy farmer, so I'll let you go. Thanks so much for that, John. Cheers, mate. Bye. South Australian Dairy Farmers Association President John Hunt there. Staying in the southeast, fire crews actually had to return to the Struan Research Centre overnight after reports a shed was alight. Now, this comes after the main part of the research centre burnt down early on last Saturday morning. CFS duty officer Danny Crozier says the building had been saved from the first blaze on Saturday morning uh, that had caused um, millions of dollars worth of damage to the centre. The um, uh, the Damage estimate is between fifteen to twenty thousand dollars, I believe, for this latest one. So both fires remain under investigation. So we'll keep you up to date on that. It is seventeen minutes to one. Know your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up to the minute critical information. We have issued an emergency. Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC radio, reliable source for information. Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Of farmers, industry, and scientists are launching a bid to massively expand Australia's hemp crop. The hemp CRC bid is asking the federal government to match $50 million worth of support already pledged by industry to support a cooperative research centre to reverse what it says is 80 years of neglect. Now, I'm interested in just how keen you are for there to be more research in this area, whether you wear uh, hemp clothing or you use hemp in some way, uh, do text me 0467 922 or phone 1300 222 The way Lorraine from Laura has, uh, she has texted in to say, hemp clothing makes so much sense, renewable, easy to wear and recycle. Let's get manufacturing back in Australia. It's not too far from the history of flax in the Mid-North during the war. Thanks so much for that uh, text. Peter from Stockport also seems to be a fan. He says, my behavioural condition includes sensory limitations. I'm very fussy about the clothing I wear. I find fabrics made from hemp fibre are the most suitable for me. I buy these as often as I can. Is this something that you'd be keen I actually didn't realise that it was as close to linen or flax as uh, as Lorraine mentioned there, as it actually is. I, I didn't know that. But there is this push to uh, see uh, uh, the the current crop, which is uh, at about 2,300 hectares, move to more than 100,000 hectares over the next decade. The the BID's Interim Chief Executive, University of Southern Queensland, Professor Gavin Ash, explains more to Callie Buchanan. Every year, the Commonwealth Government releases a BID for large initiatives. These initiatives can be built around a crop or a process or some rather large issue that's happening in the country. There's an opportunity here, we see, for hemp to be grown in Australia because of the changes in legislation and also watching what's going on around the world and what the opportunities are for the use of hemp in a whole range of things. Where is the opportunity when it comes to hemp? What could we see produced here? So hemp is one of these wonder crops. We can use hemp for nutrition, We can use it for medicine, we can use it in cosmetics, we can use it in animals and humans, we can use it in building materials, so we can use it to replace plastics. We can sequester as much carbon in a hemp field as a young pine forest, a 10-year-old pine forest does, only in 120 days. So is it purely its association with marijuana that's held it back so far? Absolutely. There was a, a problem with hemp competing with cotton. And so the cotton industry with some uh, nasty friends, not necessarily the cotton industry itself, actually had a campaign against hemp. 
that stopped hemp production around the world for 80 years. So we have 80 years worth of research to catch up on everywhere around the world and to use this crop in so many different ways. Are you feeling the turning point? Absolutely. The situation is that everybody feels now is the time for this. We, we have to look at these shortened supply chains. We have to be able to be self-sufficient, but we have to be able to develop crops that will feed, nourish and clothe our current generations. So we can use, for example, in a textile industry, we can have hemp clothing. This is very much similar to linen clothing that you can have, but it's biodegradable or compostable. And so we're talking about being able to get the full extent of use from your clothes over time, so keeping them out of garbage heaps around the world. We can also use hemp to build houses. So we can use it mixed with concrete. Hempcrete will continue to absorb carbon dioxide out of the air even after the building's built. So these are carbon-negative buildings. Some of these other compounds that are in hemp, CBDs, some of these can help people in terms of rheumatoid arthritis, treating people for pain, treating appetite for cancer patients. There is research on the effect on endometriosis and brain injury. There's a whole range of these types of compounds that are just sitting there waiting for the development to actually bring those to market. How large is the gap in our knowledge about how to grow it, how to do it successfully, how to commercialise it, how to transition existing farming systems into growing it? It's, it's a, a big hill to climb. We do have varieties in Australia that are suited to Australian conditions, but we can do better. We can do varieties that produce grain, varieties that produce fibre, varieties that produce both. And so there's an opportunity to put this into existing farming systems. So we could have it in anywhere you can grow sorghum, where you're growing sugarcane, or where you're growing cotton. And it could be in-season rotation or another crop because it grows so quickly, 120 days. And is it a case of something like the CRC would give farmers confidence that they had the same agronomic backing and understanding of that crop as they do crops like sugarcane that they are familiar with having grown for the past 80 years? Yeah, so we've actually got a whole program built around growing the plant, so behind the farm gate. So what are the supports that farmers need? What are the varieties that farmers need? What are the varietal packages that they need to give them confidence in how to grow it? But we're also building those supply chains. So uh, what's the opportunity in animal food, in human food, in clothing, in construction, so that those industries will be growing along with the production and so giving them that conduit to a market straight away. So both the push and the pull factors. So what's it going to take to get this bid off the ground? So at the moment we've been pulling together whole groups of industry partners. So at the moment we have over 50 industry partners who are interested in investing in this CRC where we'll be then going to the Australian government and asking for dollar for dollar. So we're looking at a total value of the hemp CRC of $200 million over 10 years. We think that's the sort of money, that's the sort of time that's needed to get that hemp industry on an even keel and make it so it's a sustainable crop for Australian farmers. And what's the time frame? When will you know whether the government's going to back this idea? So we're waiting at the moment for the government to call around. Uh, usually they call around, this, there's two parts around, a phase one and a phase two. In any normal year, it would be starting in the middle of next year. We're still waiting on the government to make that call. Hemp CRC bid interim chief executive Gavin Ash speaking to Kelly Buchanan. Tim from Heathfield uses hemp in making hummus, uh, replacing some sesame. That's uh, interesting. He says it's very yummy. Also uses hemp oil in food, on skin, have hemp clothing. Also seen in building products as hempcrete. Fantastic stuff. So a bit of support in South Australia for uh, hemp. But perhaps uh, there will be uh, this move to get a cooperative research centre to develop some of the attributes of the plant. We'll keep following that on the program. But you might remember the New South Wales mouse plague. Uh, It saw uh, a lot of push to find ways to get on top of mice and one was through technology. Now, uh, South Australia was involved in this. New technology has been found that it could be successful to control invasive mice by essentially breeding themselves out. Researchers at the University of Adelaide have developed a world-first proof of concept for the technology CRISPR that would make mice infertile. 
Luke Gerris, a PhD student working in genetics at the uni, says this could help eradicate mice plagues in the future. So it's a form of genetic control of invasive mice and instead of using sort of bait and trapping mechanisms like we currently do, it uses a genetic approach to spread infertility throughout a population. So it's much more humane than current sort of mechanisms. So it's breeding out these invasive mice? Yeah, essentially it's sort of spreading that trait throughout the population. We've been working on this for about four or five years now and it's sort of using very new technology. So it's an idea that we haven't been able to do sort of since a few years ago. Why can you do it now? What's this new technology and how is it used? So it uses something known as CRISPR-Cas9 and without going into details, it's a way of sort of cutting and disrupting DNA. And that was only discovered about 10 years ago that makes a lot of this technology possible. So there's still a lot of work to do. This is just the first sort of step of proof of concept. So the next steps going forward are sort of interacting with the public and stakeholders to get their opinion and feedback on this sort of technology and then sort of slowly progressing to more realistic trials, um, still maintaining it in the laboratory, uh, but progressing uh, sort of to more realistic situations. Is it both genders of mice or is it just the females or just the males? So this system, there is some male sterility involved. Um, but the main drive, I guess, is through female sterility. Is this similar technology to what's being seen with, say, um, sterile fruit fly and things like that? It's similar, yeah. So it works on the same sort of idea, but this is just sort of stronger technology. So we need to, to get this to work, we release fewer mice and it spreads much quicker. So we can do an initial seeding of, you know, a couple hundred mice and then that will be enough in theory to spread and eradicate an entire sort of population uh, targeting an island, for an example. What sort of numbers could uh, could potentially be eradicated? So we've done some modelling in this paper and we've shown that using this system we can release 256 mice into a population of 200,000 on an island and that would eradicate those 200,000 mice in about 25 years. What could this mean into the future when it comes to, you know, farmers dealing with plagues and things like that? Yeah, so it's definitely sort of a new tool that can be used sort of either alongside the current mechanisms or sort of by itself. But there's still a lot more work to be done, a lot more research within the laboratory. And then the next step is to focus on islands because they're a lot safer and a lot more containable. But of course, you know, there's a lot of interest in Australia about using this uh, to stop the mouse plagues that we see uh, and that's definitely something that we will, I guess, be interested in pursuing further, but that's still a long way away. And can this kind of technology, this new technology, be used for other animals, other pest animals that are also an issue? Yeah, hopefully. So the current system that we have is specific to mice but we're hoping that components of it can be transferred to other species such as uh, rats and rabbits and foxes. Uh, There's a lot of interest in that. And just finally, how important is this uh, research and and this technology moving forward? Well, it's critical because we've had mice in Australia for about 150 years and current control strategies haven't really changed over those 150 years. It's just been trapping and bait. So this is quite a revolutionary technology that gives us another way to try and control and suppress mice, which current approaches aren't quite good enough at the moment. Luke Garris, a PhD student working in genetics at the University of Adelaide, speaking with Brooke Neindorf. Now, finally today, three giant tractors, each worth more than a million dollars, have travelled across Australia, bound for Antarctica. The machines have been heavily modified to suit the sub-zero conditions at Wilkins Aerodrome, 70 kilometres from Casey Station on the icy continent. Jason Wood from tractor company Case AH told Aaron Cooper they've been years in the making. 
It's been a process that's been ongoing for us for quite some time now. So basically a tender was put out for three 500-horsepower four-track machines to go to Antarctica, um, but they have to be heavily modified, to, as you'd imagine, to, to handle the conditions down there. So, yeah, we won the tender, and then the, then the hard work began. So we've basically been dealing on a weekly basis with factory um, to get them to a point from factory with what we could get done at the local factory, and then we shipped them to a company called Grouser in the US who basically did all the Arctic modifications that were very unique to these machines. So are they built here in Australia before they're modified? No, so they're built in the US. So they're built in the uh, Steiger factory in Fargo in the US. Um, and then, yeah, as I said, shipped to Grouser, which is another company in the US, modified, then shipped to us. So what did they have to do? We've got some pretty hefty-looking wheels and, and things on this one. Yeah, so so basically um, they've got that's our track configuration, but this is what we've got. We call it an Arctic track on it for typically Arctic conditions. But the modifications are extensive. They've got two 40-volt heaters on the engines, transmissions, hydraulic reservoirs, as well as diesel heaters for when they're not near power sources. The engine enclosure, as you can see, is fully enclosed, so we, we basically draw all the warm air in. We can't draw any cool air in because it's just... The machine's going to be operating down to minus 40 degrees Celsius, so it's it's very extreme. A um, lot of modifications, auxiliary fuel tanks, the fuel tank size has tripled in size. Um, just so many modifications you wouldn't believe. Have you ever had to modify a tractor quite this heavily for a job before? No, no this is a very unique situation. So, yeah, it's something we haven't... Well, there's quad tracks down there that were done prior to my time with Case IH, but probably not modified quite as much as this one. And I'm looking at this one. It says tear weigh 26,760 kilos. That, that gives people a good idea of the size. But run us through some of the specs of just how big this is. Yeah, so roughly it's it's just under four metres tall. Um, length, I'd have to check it. It's probably seven or eight metres long. Um, and as you said, that's the tear weight with the full, uh, fuel tanks full. It's just under 27 tonne. Right, OK, wow. Um, and so what's the journey been so far? You said they went through their modification process in the US. I imagine it's quite a logistical exercise to get them here to Longford. Absolutely. So, yes, yeah, so they went from factory originally once they went down the production line, then they were shipped to, to Grouser for their modifications. Once completed there, back to factory for more testing um, to make sure everything was still within spec. Then they get put on a train to, to Wharf over there. Then they get shipped to us in Melbourne. Then we put them on trucks down here to, to Longford. What exactly is this supposed to do once it does reach Antarctica? So it's, got a, it's got quite a few unique um, tasks ahead of it. So probably the biggest one that it'll be doing, it's going to be pulling a 90-tonne roller. For the, for the airport runways down there. It'll also be doing scraper work, but then it'll also be pulling um, sleds as well. Yeah, right. And so when you say um, it's it's going at Wilkins Aerodome, so mm-hmm. it's trying to keep that runway flat, essentially. Absolutely, yes. Yep. So that's its major task is to keep that runway operational. That sounds like it's a pretty massive ongoing task. Absolutely. The conditions down there, as we'd imagine, would be very extreme. Um, so the ongoing maintenance of that runway would be pretty heavy duty and probably hence why there's three of them going down. And I suppose that's the other thing. I'm looking at one, but it is times three. Yeah. <laughs> How much is that made? I mean, have you ever dealt with quite a logistical exercise in your career? We handle a lot of machines. Um, probably the, the, the different thing with this one is the machines that we handle are probably pretty vanilla. So they're a pretty standard order, pretty standard build spec. This one's been very unique in that the modifications were... Very specific, uh, very specific in what they wanted and they, they knew what they wanted. It was just a matter of us um, finding the right people to help us fulfil the task. What's one of these worth now they've all been kitted out? Um, well over a million dollars, let's just say that, per unit. Yeah. Jason Wood from KSAH speaking with Erin Cooper about the three high-tech tra- tractors heading to Antarctica next month. Now, that's all we have time for. Clint from Cumberland Park's a little worried, I think, about his pet mice after that last story, but he says they're in the next room and can't hear the radio. Good to hear. Thanks for that, Clint. We're approaching 1 o'clock. Time for news. Caroline Winter. What can people do? I mean, is it in the hands of the airline that they need to work with them or is there something more that can be done, say, through your office? Airlines have previously indicated that, you know, cancelled bad luck, delayed bad luck. You can have credit, you can't have refunds. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.